Good evening, everyone, and thank you very much for joining us again or joining us for the first time on the Back to Young podcast. Um, tonight, I um, eventually managed to get uh, after a lot of uh, a lot of chasing and uh, reorganizing, but we have. <laughs> He's rubbing his hands together for anyone that's listening because we no, have. I've just got itchy fingers. I've got itchy fingers. <laughs> We've got the just turned fifty, Mister Controversial in the Athletics World, uh, Simon Dickinson. Welcome. How you doing, Dougie? Very well. Um, and our and our topic, and I sometimes forget to add this, is um, we're going to talk fairly openly about orthotics in the UK, what we're doing well, and where we can improve, um, and. Yeah, there was there's many many topics I think we could have talked about. Um, I think there's lots of areas where you, um, have expertise and and opinions, which is kind of what we want. We want to talk and and see see what your opinion is on this topic. But just to give everyone a bit of background, I always like to ask kind of a little bit of history because I know you're currently clinical director at TaylorMade, but you didn't you didn't just arrive there all of a sudden. Um, 50 years ago <laughs> what happened what happened what happened I, I, oh. um, <laughs> you can edit it you're making that. I, can, I can edit it what happened um, okay so why don't we start from prosthetics and orthotics and the degree at Salford um, I never can I never knew anything at all as a child about prosthetics and orthotics um, uh I had a, 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 an adult cousin who had spastic quadriplegia and cerebral palsy, who I grew up seeing as normal. Um, he struggled to walk, he struggled to speak. He knew more about trains and science and the world than anyone I've still ever met in my life. He was an absolute genius. And looking back now as a sort of six-year-old, seven-year-old, 10-year-old spending time with him, his name was John. Um, I never saw the disability in terms of his mental capacity to have a conversation. I used to watch him walk and think, oh, that's a bit funny and, you know, it's a bit different. Yeah. And I used to sit and have conversations with him and um, we used to play backgammon and he used to thrash me. I mean, properly thrash me. And uh, I just saw him for the fantastic and phenomenal person that he was. And, and, and I used to love spending time with him as a kid. And I have a sister who has sort of dyspraxia and uh, mild CP, and and, and I, I still didn't know anything about orthotics. My my father was a nurse. I, my dad was a military man, and you, you led by the rule of military man, and uh, he always encouraged me and my brother to be doctors. And um, I was going to be a doctor. I don't know why. I, I used to tell people at the age of 10, I was going to transplant the first human leg. Uh, <laughs> it hasn't happened. Um, not qualified, but I'm fairly sure I could give it a pretty good go after all my experience in theatres and working with some fantastic surgeons. Uh, consent might be an issue. Um, but basically, uh, as a teenager, I, 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 was, the, I was the naughty kid. Um, not naughty in terms of getting into fights and trouble, but I was I was like super cheeky. Anyone that knows me actually does know me as a as a friend knows that uh, I like a bit of banter. Yeah, um, I was the class fool, um, but a half decent footballer, and so I spent most of my time as a very immature teenager because I didn't hit puberty till I was nearly eighteen, basically playing sport and having a laugh, and I did no study whatsoever. Uh, got predicted nine A's for my GCSEs, failed four, got a B and four C's, and um, that didn't go down well with Dad, um, who was who, who was passed nine years ago. And we relocated to the Lake District, and I went to do my A levels, and uh, the school I was going to nearly didn't let me in until they sat down and asked me some questions about science, and realised I actually wasn't as stupid as my results made me appear. No offence to anyone who got B, 4 Cs, 4 Ds, but I, I literally did no work. I don't think I did a single piece of homework ever on my own until I was about 17 and a half. Um, nothing to brag about, but I, I made the wrong choices. And then, um, 
That's another thing about education systems. <laughs> yeah, I, I just, I, I just got bored easily. I, 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 if you look at ADHD and the assessments now and all of that, I was probably attention deficit disorder in terms of where I am, rather than I've done some tests and stuff. I've got a formal diagnosis, but I'm, I, I'm, I'm still easily bored. Um, and I, uh, and the, the turning point was I fractured my skull. Um, how did you do that? I was playing rugby. So I used to be half decent football. I smashed my knee up, moved to the Lake District, started playing football. Uh, started playing rugby, sorry. And, <laughs> that's, that's and the, I could play physical, the less physical sport. Yeah, less less straining um, sport. They, basically, they didn't play football. So I played rugby. And I could kick with both feet. So having never really played rugby, all of a sudden I was at fly half or fullback and I had to kick the ball a lot. And I could kick with both feet because I was half decent football. And on a very frozen winter pitch one February, just before my 17th birthday, uh, 17th, yeah, 17th birthday, I got stamped on in a rook and thought I had concussion. Went about a week. GP said, yeah, it's concussion. Had a blown pupil, completely blown uh, right side. And then um, was at a friend's house and someone chucked an orange through a hatchet, hit me in the back of the head. Unfortunately for some people, I didn't die, but it hit me right on the fracture. And I woke up four days later in intensive care oh, at the Cumberland Infirmary and only recently found out that I was a left hemiplegic for a while. I've got no recollection of being in hospital. I was in there for weeks. I had clonus in my left leg and my left arm. Um, I'm very fortunate to fully recover. And about 15 years ago, maybe a bit less, 12 years ago, discovered that I actually fractured C1 on my peg at the time and it was undiagnosed. So I kind of came away from that and I literally didn't do any more of that year at school. I had to redo the lower sixth of my A-levels and I was struggling with it. And at one point I broke down, tears one night, didn't know what to do. My dad came in and said, leave it, come and work with me. And I got up early, went to school, went and met a friend's dad who was a teacher and said, I, I, I haven't done any work ever at school. How do I pass my A-levels? And he was like, are you joking? This was this was like six months after my head injury. So I'm nearly at the end of lower sixth. Mm-hmm. I failed my mocks, in fact. And he said, uh, I don't think you can do it in four months. And I went, no, I think I can. And he went, how would you do it? So borrowed friends' notes, copied them down, summarised them, copied them down, summarised them, copied them down, exactly how I remember things now. Take notes, summarise it. If you can't get the topic on a page of A4, you don't understand it well enough. And did that and smashed my A-levels and tried to get into medical school because that was the dream. Yeah. And um, UCAS applications must have laughed at my uh, 1B, 4Cs and 4Ds in my GCSEs and my failed results and my predicted grades. And they all said no, apart from the Royal Free in London, who said, well, we want to see you. So I got on a train from Carlisle at the time, got to London. By the time I got there, they offered me... Uh, they said the place was filled, and I got offered a job as a uh, to study radiology, uh, which I uh, very impolitely said no to, and then went back. and My tutor at school said, um, "I've got a friend in Manchester, works at the medical school. He'll see you." And I went down there one Friday, and basically. Uh, Manchester Medical School was full. They offered me a place for the for the next year. Asked me what I wanted to do, and I brazenly said I want to transplant the first human leg. Mm. And he said, "So why?" I said, "Because I think the way people move is fascinating." And I talked about my cousin John, mm-hmm. um, and he said, "Have you ever thought about prosthetics and orthotics?" And I had no idea what he was talking about. And I went on to meet Professor Bowker the same day, and push goes to shove. I applied to do prosthetics and orthotics, knowing nothing about it. And funnily enough, on my first day, met a girl who I went to school with who actually copied my results because she'd done less work than me. Hi, Ruth. Hope you're well in Sydney, Australia. Now head of orthotics <laughs> in that part of New South Wales. Oh, yeah. And um, and yeah, it, it went from there. But I wanted to do prosthetics. I, I had no interest in orthotics. And, and did you ever practice prosthetics? No. Never. No, I did my, I got to my placement. So I did four years. So I was in the first intake at Salford in 92. And we 
We were a mixed bunch of different people from different genres. Um, lots of them are now NHS managers or, you know, high up in different organisations because we're the old group now. I'm, I'm an old fart now. I'm 50. I've been, you know, I, I started my training, you know, um, 30 and a half years ago. So, um, and Salford University at the time, and I don't mind saying it, and I'm really sorry if Joe Wilkinson or Shirley Christie see this, the course was a bit rubbish. Got to start somewhere. Um, And I remember having a lecture from somebody one morning about how to do something and then the afternoon from podiatry and they were saying different things. And I was totally confused. And I just thought, I'll do prosthetics because it's cool. There's technology. I can take an amputee. I can make someone walk. That would be wicked. And um, on my first day of my orthotics placement in Oxford with a a fabulous guy called Tim Ponton, I was a cocky shit, and uh, soldier, I'd swear, yeah. and yeah. You basically, basically said that I didn't want to be an orthotist. I wanted to do prosthetics, and that's how I that's how I felt. Um, I did say I was open minded enough, and I got some opportunities as a student in Oxford, which were just they they, they changed they changed me. They they made me fall in love with foot and ankle surgery. I. I had some phenomenal people I worked with. Andy Chase, who sadly passed away recently. Tim was just an inspirational guy who was just genuinely one of the nicest people you've ever met in your life. Chris Morris, who was a genius, now Dr. Chris Morris, an epidemiologist. Therese Doherty, who was actually only slightly older than me, but had qualified two years beforehand because I'd had a head injury in Scotland qualified earlier. Paul Horwood and um, Claire Bramall, as she was then. And these people were just so full of passion for orthotics. And I got given the opportunity to go and work shoulder to shoulder with somebody I still consider to be the god of orthopedic foot and ankle surgery, who is Paul Cook, who's recently retired. And lots of us did the Oxford rotation, and lots of people have worked in Oxford over the years. The guy who was the guy is simply amazing. He embraced opinion, different ideas. He was the first person to employ a surgical podiatrist within an orthopedic team in the United Kingdom. And I had the, God knows how, because I was a cocky shit, the opportunity to work shoulder to shoulder with a phenomenal surgical podiatrist called Graham Lavis and Paul Cook. And then some great other people like Tim Theologius, who is a phenomenal neuromuscular orthopedic surgeon and fantastic physios like Nikki Thompson, who did loads of work on Duchenne and gait analysis and stuff. And I was like a sponge and I was I was loving it. And I, after three weeks of being in my orthotics placement, I was like, this is this is what I want to do. And 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 that kind of and this is maybe diving ahead, but like that sounds like obviously a really nice setup. And then you do get a massive disparity across the UK, I guess, and what people's experience might be, especially at that early stage. Like that's your first experience of orthotics. That sounds incredible. Yeah, that, that was my first experience. And, and Oxford at the time was going through uh, uh, a big change. The, the service was in a hut at the back with porter cabins. Mm-hmm. But um, Lord Tebbit's wife was injured at the Brighton bomb and she was treated in Oxford. Mm-hmm. So the, the Tebbits did a massive fundraising campaign with Andy Chase and other people in Oxford. And they raised enough money to build the, the first I know of custom built orthotics department in the UK, which was mm-hmm. the field of orthotics and rehabilitation. And Norrie, as it was called at the time, yeah. in Oxford. And the Nuffield Orthopedic Centre. And as a student, um, this was all happening. It was it, they were building the foundations, and I got offered a job four weeks in. The consultant I worked with basically frog marched me into an office with Tim and Andy and said, "Give him a job." Yeah. Um, and I got a job. And as a student, I was doing the clinical work with some of the best surgeons in the world. I still think they're the best surgeons in the world. And, Amazing people. And then throughout, like your roles, like do you feel that like you always landed in a place where there was a good service, and you, or did you ever? I- Get to places where there was you had that in your back of your mind that's what you saw is how it should be set up and um, and and you had to make the changes there or oh, oxford was 
just a phenomenal place to be because it was a breeding ground for opportunity. And that was when kind of subtailer neutral and feet theory came in. I remember doing the Langer biomechanics course in 95 with a phenomenal guy called Paul Barcroft. And I was absolutely consumed and enthralled by it. And I went away and practiced it. And I was like, hold on a minute. This, I'm getting patients better, but the feet aren't straight. Hold on, whoa, 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 what, what's going on here? Um, after I left Oxford, um, uh, which was for personal reasons, a, a relationship breakdown, I got divorced. I kind of ended up in an environment that wasn't quite like that. Mm -hmm. But But my Oxford experience and I worked really 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 hard and studied really hard and challenged really really hard and I kind of developed this attitude that there's no such thing as a problem we can't fix the challenge is we don't necessarily understand it well enough or we haven't got the right kit if somebody's got a movement disorder or pain or whatever it may be there has to be a reason and maybe we don't understand why but maybe just doing the same old thing doesn't work. So I got the ability to, to experiment, to try things, to fail. And I learned to love to fail yeah, because I learned something. And I was always actively encouraged to try stuff. And amazingly, a lot of stuff came out. And the way I was working then was supported by publications. And it was weird because for a period of time, when we moved away towards soft tissue stress theory, I was kind of doing that. And I knew it was working, but I didn't understand why. I was already doing that stuff, but I went to different organizations and met it. And when I moved around the UK, so I went to the West Midlands. Within being there for not very long, I got a call from the surgeon, Paul Cook, who I used to work with, who said the Royal Orthopedic Hospital are just about to appoint a new consultant. I, I knew this guy as a, as a registrar in Oxford. He wanted to recreate the Oxford Foot and Ankle Clinic. And if anyone has been there recently, that was something I was incredibly proud to help create with Paul Cook, which is a massive multidisciplinary clinic. It was phenomenal, massive learning experience. And I got the opportunity to do it again in Birmingham mm -hmm. with a phenomenal surgeon called Mark Heron. And um, I got, uh, I was working for True Life. Who, well, I was Camp Healthcare became True Life, or sorry, Tyco became Health. Yeah, true life part of me um, wants to just say like if someone was listening to this and they were like because this all sounds like phenomenal and i know these things exist these services exist but like what about there's probably people listening that are like well i'm turning up 20 minute appointments every day 20 pay, like 20 25 patients a day like you know how how do they where are these jobs where you get to be in that multidisciplinary team and uh, and be involved because I, and I, I totally agree like when you're involved in an environment like that that drives your enthusiasm and your passion to be included and not be that kind of you know down down in the corridor in a, in a little room on your own and nobody knows you're there that's, I, that's... I think it's difficult so 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 i opportunities presented themselves to me and i and i maximized the opportunity every time so i used to regularly do 12 14 hour days on my second day, I saw 84 patients with Andy Chase at Reading on my own as a graduate. All right. Uh, at the time, 84 patients in a day. I did 27 AFO casts that day. Right. So I was literally, I went in, it was it was back in the day of a white coat, black trousers. I went home looking like a plasterer. All right. Um, it was ridiculous. We started at six, we finished at eight. Okay, and that was an hour drive from Oxford where I was working at the time. I think, Dougie, to answer your question, I think the thing with the thing that I learned, which was engraved from me from my dad, was that if you want to, if you want it, you've got to try. Mm -hmm. And I found myself not knowing what I wanted as a child, having this dream that was partly my dad's, not really trying, and all of a sudden I was doing something where I was helping people. And I was able to experiment and try and do things that made a difference to people. And some of the people around me at the time, Paul Cook, Andy Chase, Tim Ponton, Chris Morris, Paul Hall, these people, they gave me the opportunity mm. to try stuff. Yeah. And and I'm not sure that that necessarily exists. And we, was, we were doing 20 minute, I think we might have been doing 15 minute pumps. At Reading, we were doing five minute pumps. It was daft. Mm. I once gave a patient a custom made pair of shoes I'd made for someone else and had a bunion operation. Um, 
yeah, custom made shoes on the day. Fantastic result. Um, so I, I think I think the world's less changed. Less waste. I mean, yeah, there was a bit, there was a bit of waste back there. Um, I think the thing that's the thing that I think um, I, I I think I had opportunity, but I think in a way I created the opportunity. Because I, I was like a dog with a rag. I wouldn't let go of it. And I remember going to the first ever foot and ankle clinic I, I ever did on a Friday. And we were sitting waiting for patients to be referred across. I was like, stuff this. I've met that surgeon. I was in theatre with him the other day. I'm going to go and ask. I'm going to go and see what he's doing. So I just walked in and said, can I follow you? And he went, yeah. Put an x-ray up on the board. And he said, what's that? And I was like, <gasps> never seen one of them. And I was just sucked in. And I was like a sponge. It didn't matter what we did. We were doing some amazing work at the time. I got exposed to all sorts of stuff and I grafted. Don't, don't get me wrong. I partied really hard, too hard in the evenings away from work. But when I was at work, I always had the attitude and I still have the attitude. I'm not there for me. I'm there to help that person that's in front of me. And no matter what, how bad my life is or how I'm feeling or whatever else, I have a duty of care to those people who come into me to do my best. Mm-hmm. And if that means I have to break some rules and try some stuff, if it makes sense, I'm prepared to do it. And I was supported to do it. Yeah. Can you give me an example? Um, Okay. So I remember really clearly, and Andy's not here to answer this, bless his soul. When I was in Oxford, I remember seeing a patient who came in with a classic hind foot varus. Heels inverted. Consul said, Simon, this guy's got some pain in his feet. Can you have a look at him and give him some insults? And I remember looking at this guy and the referral at the time, we were kind of told what to do. So back then, autotests weren't regulated. So we would get a referral and it would almost be descriptive, a little bit like how it is in the States in a way. Yeah. It would be a specific product or a specific orthosis type. Or if it was an intel, it would be like a UCBL or a functional foot orthosis with a medial wedge or whatever. Yeah. And I remember getting this and the referral said laterally wedged device and I looked at this guy and he had lateral ankle pain and I stood him up and I made him roll his trousers to his knees because I always had because Graham Labors had taught me that and I looked at his legs and I, and his tibias were bent like bananas he had tibial verum the likes of which someone with Blount's disease would see and his heel was inverted to the ground but his leg was even more inverted to the ground uh-huh. so in actual fact his subtalar joint was pronated yeah And he was experiencing sinus tarsi syndrome or lateral ankle impingement, as we know it now. And subtailor neutral principle would have said, take the cast, hold it where it is, draw your alignment line, immediately wedge it. Mm -hmm. And I was like, that doesn't make sense. So I, sorry, sorry, take that, take that alignment and correct it straight. Yeah. So I was like, right, I'm going to do the opposite. This is an inversion problem. This foot's actually pronating and its symptoms are related to pronation rather than supination. So I'm going to immediately wedge him. He had a tight TA, gave him a heel raise. Mm-hmm. Made him these devices, which were fairly basic at the time. Gave them to him, really high arch profiles. And he came back for review. And when he came back for review, Andy was in clinic that day, my boss, the guy who employed me, the guy who had created the opportunity for me to have fun and try stuff and improve and learn. And he came up to me and he went, you've really messed this one up. I've just looked at this guy's insoles. You've medially wedged them. They should be laterally wedged. I'm sorry, Simon. I can't back you up on this. You've done it wrong. So Paul Cook, who was the surgeon, then said, uh, Simon, I need a word. He pulled me into the patient and I got a dressing down in front of the patient by Andy, who was my boss, mm-hmm. who I hugely respect because he was following a certain paradigm. Mm-hmm. Okay. This patient sat there. I've got a massive bollocking. Right, and at that time, Andy was in a tricky position, and he was making a position for himself. So I basically got hung out on the washing line, and this guy, I'm getting loads and loads and loads of grief, and then all of a sudden, the patient goes, "Whoa, whoa, whoa can I stop you there? My feet don't hurt. When I wear these devices, I've got no pain, and I'm running again. Mm-hmm. But in these devices, but when I'm not wearing them, uh, absolute agony." I don't know what you two think you're doing, but that kid knows what he's doing. Mm-hmm. And I'd made a prescription which was against the rules, which made sense yeah. based on basic physics rather than a paradigm 
that putting things straight worked. And that was a massive game changer for me. And actually, Andy apologised to me. And I sat down with him for two hours and explained why I made the decision with the surgeon at the end of the clinic. Yeah. And that was, you've got to fail and you've got to challenge it, but you've got to do it in the right way. Yeah. And if you come across something, because I always believed that doctors knew everything. And, and they can't because they're, they're experts. GPs can't know how to manage every condition in the world. Orthopedic surgeons can't be experts in orthotics. We're experts in orthotics. Yeah. And that's changed now with HCPC registration and with the prescribers. But it wasn't like that in 1997. Yeah, that takes a long time to change as well. Like the habit of that referral with its prescription on it and then actually saying to the to the consultant, I mean, God, it took us years um, where, where yeah. I was working in the NHS to be like, actually just trust us. I mean, and especially then I was thinking about that going into the, the kind of private sector and working privately, like you don't get a referral and you think actually this is probably easier because I can just work this out myself and yeah. decide the, the appropriate kind of like prescription or not. Yeah. So, I mean, so that's kind of, I agree with you, Dougie. And I think that's, that's kind of the mentality that I suppose bringing it to modern times now. Yeah. Um, I, I imagine some people probably still work in that way where their prescription. I, they do, and I think, and I think one of the things that probably I'm guilty of is I, I like change too much. For, for me, I've got a really simple principle with stuff, which is if I look at something and it makes sense, it's probably right. If someone explains something to me and I can have all the publications in the world, and it doesn't make sense to me, I'm like, yeah, I don't like that because. The, the job that we do is not about us as individuals. The job that we do is about the outcomes that we give to our patients based on their needs and their desires. And unfortunately, sometimes we can't do the things that we wish we could do because either the patient's too far gone or we haven't got the knowledge, the technology, the influence or the skill. Let's yeah. be honest. Yeah. Okay. And that can be manufacturing techniques, whatever. Yeah, totally. Uh, and, and that's a hard pill to swallow. And I always hate, I hate failing. I detest it. I take it personally because I, I see it as my responsibility to try to help these people and try to understand for them to understand the problem. I think the, the thing that's changed in the last 30 years is that there's so much pressure that exists now on, on people to make decisions quickly. Yeah. They don't have the opportunity to play. I, I, I played for years. Yeah. I failed. I got it. I, I corrected it and got it right. I was in an organisation that had a workshop. If I got a web drawing, I could swap it over. I could yeah. add it. I could do it immediately. Yeah. And those those environments don't necessarily exist for graduates now. And I think... Yeah, I agree. Okay. And I also think I, that, I that we, we now live in an evidence-based world. And, and I think that's a good thing. I think it's also a really bad thing. Um, because yeah. some people just like lemmings follow the evidence, jump off a cliff. Yeah. Uh, and... The evidence is only what we think we know at the time to make that work. It doesn't necessarily mean it's the best thing. It just means it's the best thing we know at the moment. And depends on what questions people have decided to ask and where they're yeah. from. And there's, there's a lot of uh, bias, I guess, sometimes underlying some work. Uh, yeah. and, and when you've done, uh, and the other thing is I'm, I'm reaching an age now, I'm of an age, as I keep being getting told by my, my colleagues, um, that I'm no longer the young pup anymore. I'm the old annoying guy that keeps going, yeah, but how do you do it better? How do you do it better? How could you do it better? How could we be smarter? How could we be quicker, more efficient, cheaper, whatever? Mm -hmm. um, the, the opportunity now and the stress is now on graduates to be able to perform and the stresses that occur from, you know, COVID has made it harder. Yeah. You know, um, graduates, we, we, we have the highest um loss rate yeah, of yeah. graduates in the first three years of qualification as any paper that came out that they wrote about retention in PO, which was really uh, and this might sound really, really sad, right? Okay. I got that angry with that. I wound myself up I didn't sleep that night. Okay. I ended up sticking something on Twitter or something on on social media. It's abhorrent to me that we've got these people that go through all of this training who spend their time and now they have to pay for it themselves mm -hmm. and they end up in a career that where we desperately need people who care and for whatever reason they choose to leave the profession 
but that's that's where maybe it comes back to not everybody lands in a place where they have the Oxford experience or or a place where they're they've got yeah. opportunity and they're kind of like right you're graduate shadow me for three months and then right off you go then you're like just being sent here there and everywhere to kind of almost feel like the the, the kind of outsider because you're coming in from a company and you just come in one or two days a week to that hospital and <laughs> I mean, that's one, one version of probably many, many versions that exist in the UK. Yeah, I, I, I'm, a, I'm, a, I'm aware of people who have joined commercial organisations and left for the first three years. I'm also aware of people who have worked for the NHS and left for the first three years. Yeah. Um, <laughs> the, 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 the challenge, I think, is, you know, back in the day, we didn't have... Um, it, it was a little bit different there was a little bit more freedom there wasn't the commercial pressure and the nhs has commercial pressure people always go on about the nhs as a non-commercial organization it's a business it's funded by taxation it's not necessarily run as well as a business but it is a, an organization that needs to be run like a business and for whatever reason and there are lots of complicated reasons Orthotics is seen as a commodity rather than a high-level service, which is integral to care. And 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 that uh, and there'll be people who watch this, and uh, uh, Nick Gallagher and Reading will be shouting at the screen going, "Simon, you can't say that." And, and the caveat I'll say is that there are exceptions. There are some phenomenal yeah. commercial and NHS organisations in this country, and nobody turns up wanting to do the right thing. The challenge is that the people who manage and fund our services don't understand what we do and the, the clinical trials that are involved in what we do don't necessarily reflect the actual impact that we have because the complexity and diversity of patients we see. Yeah. And so what's happened is the NHS has made a decision and most services we're going to pay you this mm -hmm. and every year they've tried to do this for the last 15 years. Yep. Okay. And what's happened is that the number of patients we can see, the technology we have and the knowledge we have has done this. And some of these devices are really, really cool, but the NHS can't afford them. Yeah. And, I, and I remember back in, um, I think it was 2015, Neil Churchill did the Improving Orthotic Services uh, review, which has been published and it's now an NHS England document and there was some guidance on documents. And I remember asking a, a question which was a typical Simon question, which is, okay, let's throw a hand grenade into the middle of the room. And my question was, when is the NHS going to admit that the service that they get from orthotics people, us, mm -hmm. the orthotic service is the, is the service the NHS can afford rather than the best we can do? Yeah. Because we can do phenomenal stuff but you need the time to do it. You need the skill to do it. You need to support it to do it. And there aren't enough of us and there's too many people leaving. And you chase your tail, you chase your tail, you chase your tail to try to create that environment where you can nurture people and give them the opportunity to learn. Yeah. Because some of the things we do are really complicated. So and let, me give you, let me give you an example, yes. Dougie, right? This is my hot potato at the minute, footwear. <laughs> <laughs> if you have a foot deformity, say you're a diabetic patient who has developed complications with the diabetes for whatever reason, and they end up developing a horrible thing called a Charcot arthropathy, where the bones of their feet essentially lose the strength, they fracture, they end up with a foot deformity, they could lose their limb. Years ago, patients would die of septicemia, and unfortunately, that still happens. And if they recover through that process, they often end up with a foot that's not foot shaped. And that foot is significantly at risk, massively at risk. And if we don't manage the way that foot is loaded, that foot could break down and that patient could have all sorts of issues. Fortunately, not much pain, but they could spend half their life in a hospital for the next two or three years. I think a lot of people who are listening are probably had that patient with the Charcot foot that's come in, whatever that Charcot is in the foot, and then just constant cycle of, into yeah. shoes, out of shoes, into cast. Or so, you know, orthotists used to be called shoe fitters. I remember going to a clinic in rugby when I was at, at Tyco. <laughs> yeah. And, it, and the, the, the sign on the door was Rod Heath's clinic. It said shoe fitter. Yeah. Right? I I that on it as well. Yeah. Uh, uh, and 
uh, God bless him. Rod was a phenomenal guy with footwear. But when we do our training and when I speak to graduates now coming out of university, orthopedic footwear is a large percentage of what an orthotist does. In terms of an orthotics budget, it, it might be as high as 40% of the total spend or even higher. How, 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 many days, how many days did you do training at university? So, so I think I did like two because we went to Rawtonstall. Um, Jose and I were discussing this the other day. We went to Rawtonstall College where they kind of showed us stuff about shoes, but it wasn't orthopedic. And I actually had a pair of uppers I moulded over a last, which were apparently my foot that was given to me. I don't remember being taught to measure a pair of shoes. Oh, I don't remember being, being taught how to specify a pair of shoes. I don't remember all sorts of other stuff. So but we as a profession are responsible for footwear in the healthcare system. And podiatry do some bits, and that's fine, because there's a massive demand for this, and there's massive waiting lists. But if you look at how the rest of the world does it, you get to Germany... There's a shoemeister program that's four years and it's just on shoes. Yeah. I've got I've got graduates working for me who have done half a day. Yeah. That's ridiculous. Yeah. And the way we think a shoe stays on a foot is not necessarily the way a shoe stays on a foot. And the way we measure and the way we prescribe and the way we manufacture potentially is flawed because orthotists are doing their very best. But basically, most orthotist skills, and I put my hand up until about six months ago. My clinical skill was based on trying to figure out how to make it work based on experience and what other people have shared from me and knowledge and contact with manufacturers. Yeah? Yeah. That 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 needs to change. Yeah, I, th yeah. I think so. I think I was fortunate to work for a little bit with shoe company and uh, that maybe buy a few books and it was on, but I think you can understand the manufacturing process of footwear to as much as you want, but then you always have the person on the other end who has that subjective feedback, which you can't, which is almost difficult to argue with. Yeah, and, 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 and the argument then is, this, you've got this really complicated patient with a really complicated history, who's probably waited a long time or more than we want to, who's been through clinic after clinic after clinic if they're diabetic with a Charcot, and then all of a sudden they appear with us and um, they've, waited, they've waited more than they should do. They've got a really complex problem and we prescribe something and we do our very best and sometimes it doesn't work out how we want to. I can understand how somebody newly qualified but can become really disillusioned with that. Yeah. Um, and and I, I don't necessarily have the answer to it. I, I have, I yeah, have that's, very that's, high opinions on it. but I don't, I don't think there is an easy answer. I don't think that's not, not what... I would expect like the answer to solve some of these issues like that's just one area because I, I was going to um, ask you what what you think we do well is there anything in particular we do well at the moment in orthotics in the UK that you see I think there's a lot we really do well and I don't think we focus on it enough we make people walk we help people move we help people have less pain we give people sometimes just our time Mm -hmm. We explain things to people where they come to see us and they sometimes don't know why they're being referred. And that patient leaves with a lot more knowledge about their condition, about why they have the problem and what they can do to help themselves. I think as a profession, the professions we have, every single person who works as an orthotist in the United Kingdom, I, I don't know prosthetics and, and, and therefore I'm assuming they're the same. Uh, and I know there's some phenomenal people doing it, but I know about orthotics everybody genuinely does their best to try to help people mm -hmm. and we help an awful lot of people the, ch the challenge is that, that we're not funded well enough there's not enough of us there's clearly a problem with retention of staff based yeah. on commercial pressures nhs pressures waiting lists covid's made it worse um but we help people a lot I I do think you're you're right. I think there's there's so much we can offer, and time time is like from from my experience of working for in house services and then working outside that and to private practice. And you'll have this experience perhaps and feel the same way. But the like when you're in private practice, you can give as much time as you feel it needs. Oh yeah, yeah. And then so, you're just like, this is this is this is much better because I can spend an hour or I can spend an hour and a half with this person if that's what they need. So we can like you know really get understand what how you know full assessment, yeah, uh, no rush. 
Orthotics has almost become it like like a lot of NHS services, and and I'm, I'm prepared to say it, it's become a numbers game. Mm-hmm. How many people did you see? Yeah. Uh, what? And the reality is that did those people have a really good experience? And and the metrics for measuring that are flawed. Yeah. But Agreed. but you know, do we give people the care they need? Healthcare care mm-hmm. is part that I don't necessarily think patients feel. Listen to the world at the moment. People just sometimes want to talk. The NHS hasn't got the capacity or the time scale to provide the care that people need. Don't get me started on social care. Sometimes part of the point with with give someone some more time was the fact that you ended up perhaps not always prescribing oh, something. God, right. So, so Dougie, let's let's get let's 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 go to the elephant in the room, right? I stood up uh, a few years ago at Bapo's AGM and suggested that Bapo should review its best practice guidelines to increase the minimum appointment time for a new patient. I caused a shitstorm. Okay. Where, where, what, what was the current time? What, what were you proposing? So, so it was around the time that, I don't know if you remember the study, and forgive me, I can't remember the name of the person right now off the top of my head who published the study, but there was a review done of a new patient appointment time on average for an NHS service compared to a commercial service. Yeah. So these are NHS patients being seen by the same professionals, by the way, I'll go on record, authorities should be employed by the NHS and run through NHS services. Companies should provide products. I'm a clinical director of a company that employs authorities to deliver services because that's what we're asked to do. The NHS should have well-run orthotic services, but that requires managers at high level to try to engage and support that, and that's inconsistent. There are some phenomenal NHS services. There are others that struggle. That's fact. But the reality is that these patients presenting at an in-house service versus a contracted service see an equally qualified professional and this person gets more than 40 minutes to say hello and how are you and understand the problem and this person gets 20 minutes. A physiotherapist gets between 45 minutes and an hour. A podiatrist gets between half an hour, or in biomechanics, they get an hour. How are we supposed to be able to give the same level of care to patients who have complex needs or complex issues that we can't predict until they're in the room and fully understand the problem and take measurements, casts, scans, write specifications, write clinically accurate notes when you've got a diversity, which is 40 minutes versus 20 minutes. Mm-hmm. And, and I don't think it fully captured it. I think I think that actually there are some services that are like this because that was averages. Yeah, I, yeah, I think that's... that's, that's and in every average you got higher. So my, my request was for um, BAPO's... Uh, uh, professional affairs committee to review the best practice guidelines which was happened and there have been some changes to that which i am uncomfortable with i think we have to be as professionals uh, given the opportunity to provide the level of care that patients need and if that means that patients have to wait longer then we have to get it right if we don't have the time to get it right we get it wrong that patient needs more appointments, they have a poor outcome, they have a poor experience, they feel undervalued, things don't work. The NHS spends money on kit that may or may not work well, right? Some people are telling okay, oh, I can do everything in 20 minutes. Absolute nonsense. I take anyone on, any time, right now, you know my email, it's dead easy. I I own all statistics. Put your email on the, on the comments. Yeah. I, I, take that, I take that challenge on because we've got really complex diversity in people and and, and and imagine you're a graduate you come on all you've done is theory you've gone to Salford or Strathclyde slightly different I think the apprenticeship program is going to be different because I think they're going to be more rounded yep. um, but still they need time they need time you've got to learn to have conversations mm-hmm. 50% of our job is communication and we've got to be able to at least at yeah. least yeah 
and we've got to be able to communicate to patients so they understand why they have a problem because doctors and referrers are under massive pressure and half the time patients don't know why they've got a condition or what they can do for themselves to manage it mm-hmm. but if we're going to help them that the reality is that our focus for years and 30 years ago again go back to the 90s we gave we were prescribers. We were prescribing orthotics. Some services still, still think that orthotics are essentially dispensers of orthotics. They might just be custom made. Yeah. We're not. We've got to manage people holistically. We need to talk to them about their lifestyle, weight, activity levels. We need to give people exercise. We need to try to get people better. We need to try to rehab people out of this. These conversations take time. We have to have difficult conversations with people with obesity to explain to them that actually that's compounding their issue and our effectiveness is limited by that. And they're really hard conversations to have with patients because you've got to explain the context of it. You can't just say to somebody who's overweight, I'm sorry you're overweight, it makes it worse. Yeah, That's sometimes the conversation that person's had. You've got to explain to them that that's an issue and if they don't resolve that, this might not work. It's got to be a relationship based on time and, and, and that's the bit that really we haven't got enough people yeah i was going to say this is like the next part was like i was going to kind of suggest we talked about was like how do we improve but it almost feels like we're in a bit of a a control spiral where we are losing people faster than you know we can make them uh and then we're also in these services which are kind of negative experiences for clinicians where where you're Kind of, yeah, how do you, oh God, like you have to kind of try and reverse that somehow. It's, you know, yeah. going okay, to so, give so, us all more time. They'll be like, no so, way, the numbers will look bad. My personal opinion. This is my personal opinion. Yeah, if you can do anything, believe, you want, no, no hold barred, do whatever you want to do. Right, no hold barred. We are at a crossroads. Okay. There are two paths. We carry on doing what we're doing. And what will happen is that we will struggle to recruit and retain staff. NHS budgets will continue to go down. We will get to a point where we cannot deliver the services that patients need and waiting lists will go up. And we will not have staff who have the opportunity to learn. People need the opportunity, and and patients might struggle with this, but but new graduates need the opportunity to learn from making mistakes because that's life. Um, or they tell and, you at university, you're and we have to got to have the opportunity and the workforce to be able to support and mentor those people, to support them, to also challenge the evidence. If we carry on just doing what we're doing, nothing improves. Yeah, nothing yes. improves, nothing changes, nothing changes at all. We still prescribe metal calipers for people connected to footwear. Every time I have to prescribe one, a part of me dies. Right. I want to melt them down and turn them into paper clips. If we'd have got that patient earlier, I believe we could have done something that could have stopped them needing that caliper. Right. If we had the right workforce, being able to see the right people at the right time, we can have a massive impact on people's lives. But the reality is that the stresses on our services and the way our services are funded causes a massive amount of pressure. Now, there are exceptions. Okay. There are exceptions. But that's also a problem. There has to be a standard. There has to be a baseline. And I, I, and I stood up and asked for this before and I got been shouted down and I'll do it again on this podcast. The NHS needs to decide that the minimum wait time for a patient is X number of weeks. Mm-hmm. Services need to be funded to provide appropriate orthoses that the NHS can afford because that's the real world for these patients. Block contracts, the NHS being giving a fixed amount of money to treat however many people come through the door, do not work. Yeah, they not, do not, not work. <laughs> they not. never work. The NHS is trying to currently figure out how to pay itself for crying out loud. Because the payment by resource tariffs on contracts meant that services that had planned care and got paid by procedure during COVID, they didn't get any income. But they still have to pay the staff. Yeah. Block contracts didn't perform. So they overspent on the, so they didn't spend their budget and it, it, it doesn't work. Yeah. So the, the problem with public healthcare services is partly there's no competition. And, and although the NHS argues 
And I've got a dear friend who's very high up in finance in the NHS, and I won't mention his name. We had this discussion, and he keeps telling me the NHS has comp- got competition. No, it hasn't. Not, not at our level. No, yeah. yeah. Patients want to access their local service and get the right treatment. Yeah. And we have services where the NHS doesn't want to pay for the services and the costs of delivering that care. So I'll give you an example, Doug, and I'm sorry, I'm, I'm on my soapbox now. I'm sat on a stool in my, in my kitchen, but I'm on my soapbox now. And this is a really horrible analogy. And for anyone who's watching who's a patient, um, I mean this sincerely, okay? If you are a child who is born with an absent limb, half a leg, the NHS will provide you with a prosthesis for the rest of your life. Okay, they will provide you with an activity limb if you meet certain criteria for swimming or for sports. Those limbs could cost thousands of pounds a year. Conversely, if you are a parent and you have a child who has cerebral palsy, which is a brain injury around the time of birth, your child will have a permanent disability that may affect, for example, one side of their body. If we're dealing with that leg, the amount of money the NHS has to provide treatment for the care of that limb is probably a tenth of what the amputee gets. Yeah, yeah. These are two children, okay, who have massive potential and future lives, and this one gets loads of money, and this one doesn't. That's wrong. Now, this child with cerebral property probably doesn't need the cost of a prosthesis, but they need more than what they currently get because they need an orthosis to help them walk and grow and manage their condition, but they also need an orthosis to keep them socially included and do sports and have fun. Yep. We need to embrace technology that allows things to functionally move rather than keep things stiff. We've got the technology. We can't pay for it. Yeah, I I, I think that's something like not not being in the NHS anymore is kind of like actually not many people can just get away with one orthosis really like usually like you say you need well, I, I think Dougie, some, some can because we do we do whole body don't we but I think if we're dealing with an adult with a stroke or if we're dealing with a child with cerebral palsy or yeah that, that's the one that I think other conditions I think I think I think what we need to be able to do is provide people with the opportunity to have the lifestyle that they need because if if we could keep people active so Let's, let's take a kid with cerebral palsy, okay? A condition which is a life-changing condition. It's not a life-limiting condition, but that child is going to have a different development pathway. And, and I think the first thing we need to identify is that's normal for them. We need to stop using the word abnormal. Our, our purpose as clinicians treating that child with cerebral palsy is to allow them to reach their potential and to do everything we can to allow them to reach their potential. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's yeah. you would like you would write. That's what every uh, clinician what? in the world wants to do. Yeah, but our healthcare system isn't set up to do it. Yeah, because we can't provide them with X, Y, or Z because we haven't got the budget for it. But if I chop the child's leg off, and I'm sorry, that sounds brutal. They can have an artificial limb, and they can have a smart foot and a running leg with a carbon fiber shank on it. It costs four grand. That's wrong. I mean, that is wrong absolutely bloody wrong wrong is the bit that there's a dis- such a disparity rather than the kid getting all the, the, yeah the- yeah the, the, it's not the child's it's not the child's fault yeah and, and the healthcare providers we don't, we, we want to help both of those children equally both of those children face challenges for the rest of their lives but we can help both of them yeah uh, and why aren't we focusing on what we can do rather than being limited by what we can't do. It's interesting to think how it got there. How did there become such a disparity when we all... Like, oh, I don't know. I, I, I just read today there's some new prosthetic guidelines and I haven't read them because yeah, I, I'm not in that world. I live in the world of orthotics and I live in the world of no, I'll adults bring, with strokes. I'll bring things. it back to, like, is there, is there potential for orthotics not to be in the NHS, do you think? I, I, I don't. I I, I I, I, yes, there is absolutely the potential. Um, I, I don't want to bash the I was an NHS manager. I think the NHS is one of the greatest institutions that there is in the world. However, um, having been an NHS manager and been involved at high levels for a long period of time, 
I genuinely believe that the NHS is absolutely phenomenal at acute care. Amazing. Absolutely amazing. You have a significant injury and an ambulance picture, but it might take too long at the moment. You end up in a situation, the life-saving care, those clinicians who work in emergency care are absolutely amazing. Cardiac arrest, stroke, whatever, road traffic accident, phenomenal people. You can't plan for that. You've got to react and you can try to map patterns, but having been an NHS manager, that's that's kind of what they do. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You arrive, you get the treatment you need. Amazing. Yeah. I had appendicitis recently. I had surgery within 18 hours of arriving in the hospital. I wasn't high priority, but, you know, same day, same day surgery. Just yeah. and, and look at the British military, which is an extension of the NHS in a way in terms of how it works. Their medical care that they give is, you know, look at the, the work that was done at Camp Bastion when all that was going on. The survival rates of UK British soldiers' injuries was much higher than any other group involved in that because the quality of care, the special specialties of people, and the forward thinking, the dynamic thinking and approaches, amazing. Uh, one of the best doctors I've ever worked with is a guy called Bob Winter. If he ever sees this, Bob, you're as mad as a box of chocolate frogs, but I love you. Mm-hmm. The guy's a genius, absolutely phenomenal. What we're not great at in the NHS is planned care, and I'm not sure that rehabilitation is taken seriously enough. Yeah. And I think if there is a move, and if there are models to look at, and if we look at Holland, Australia, Sweden, Norway, the US... Mm-hmm. Their planned care systems are private systems, and we have to ensure that people can get access to those systems. And the Medicare system in the US isn't great, but it kind of works in a way. We've got to figure out a way of better delivering planned care. And and I think one of the challenges with the public healthcare system is that the internal people within that system can, uh, 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 and I'll be very careful with my words, they mark their own homework. Yeah. Okay. They're, they're monitored, they're public servants, and they're monitored by public servants. Yeah. They have no influence of all those things. It Commercial organisations, potentially competition. If you're not doing a good job, you have a choice where to go. Yeah. And the NHS has gone a bit like that, but not enough for me. Yeah. I, I think, uh, would I privatise the NHS? No. But well, I would think about doing it for yeah, secondary yeah. care, and I would keep primary care free at the point of delivery. Yeah. Because I think... If it offer better opportunity to these patients for things to be more equal than the situation you presented, or it um, allows, like you know, better access to like the a, a bigger range of uh, prescriptions for people to to go through. I mean, it, it's just how they would set up. And I agree. I think there are some systems in the around the world which, like, are phenomenal. Uh, even though they are, you know some kind of private funding that has to go into them. but Yeah, I, I think our spend per capita is quite low, but that's misleading because levels of taxation are different in different companies and it works in different ways around the world. I, I just, the NHS isn't as efficient as it should be. And that's not the fault of the clinicians doing it. I think it's the fault of the structure of the system. And you have an established system that's been there for a long time. And changing that is like trying to turn an oil tanker 180 degrees in 10 metres, when in reality that might take a mile and a half. And the whirlwind spins because of global pandemics and everything else. I think everyone tries really, really, really hard. But fundamentally, I don't think any of us believe that the healthcare system we have right now, if you were going to look at the blue sky and say, what does good look like for secondary care, not not for primary, not not for acute care, I don't think any of us would, would think that what we've got right now is, is as good as it could be. And unfortunately, orthotics is way down the pecking order for that. Yeah, so that's definitely how it feels. But um, cool. Thank you. I think we've probably covered the main topic of the the podcast pretty well there. That's... I might not get invited back to NHS. Oh, no, you definitely the would. Fastest hour, just have a good conversation and, uh, and just, you know, just chat i mean it's just a conversation at the end of the day but we were just yeah i think there's one thing i want to summarize dougie is that for for anybody who sees this who is has been disillusioned or is disillusioned is is reach out to people we have to look after each other and and 
change is something that no individual can make. We, we, we need to, I think we need to have a clear idea of where we're going forward. And I generally think Bappo's trying right now, but anyone who's out there who feels a bit fed up and they're an orthotist out there working or a patient that's not got the care that they want, every orthotist is doing their very best in a system that fundamentally isn't designed as well as it could be. Um, and for those clinicians who are struggling, reach out and, uh, and find somebody who can support you and mentor you and talk to you because what you do is amazing. And if you're struggling at the moment, that's not your fault. You need to learn. And don't be scared to, to, to try to challenge convention because when that patient comes in front of you, it's you've got to try and do your best. And I know that's pressure um, and it's really, really hard. And sometimes things are very, very difficult. But if it makes sense in your head when you assess them, try it. Because more often than not, you'll be right. Sorry, Dougie. No, it's okay. No, well said. No, well said. I think that's a nice summary. And I think um, that uh, it's been it's been a really good conversation. And um, I think there's definitely more that we other subjects we can get you back on. To talk about. <laughs> so uh, I think I don't think that I think this has been good. I think it's I don't think it, yeah, it's nothing overly controversial. That's not true from experiences that I've shared as well. So yeah, thank you so much for your time and coming on. It's my pleasure, Doc. Thank you.